Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. A lot of people don't know this, but um, commentators of all ideological stripes have criticized the Roe opinion and its reasoning. One notable critic was John Hart Ely, who was a supporter of abortion rights as a matter of legislative policy. But he wrote that Roe, quote, was not constitutional law and gives almost no sense of an obligation to try to be. Dear friends of the Austin Institute, this is one of our special episodes, the recording of one of our public events. In this case, you're going to listen to the talk delivered by Heather Hacker, J.D., on February 13, 2023, a conversation on the future of abortion laws and policies. Believe me, you will all learn things you did not know before, regardless of what you thought or think about abortion. Heather has been an influential voice behind the scene, and hers is a rare insight. Heather Gavlin Hacker is an accomplished trial and appellate litigator, a recognized leader in pro-life litigation, and before starting a law firm, she served Texas as an assistant solicitor general, representing the state in its most critical appellate litigation and advising senior officials and state agencies on very important legal issues. Last summer, she filed two notable amicus briefs at the United States Supreme Court in the Dobbs case, one on behalf of Professor Marianne Glendon and Curtis Need, and another one on behalf of three notable women physicians and the Catholic Association, which was unique for including images of the unborn child in the text of the brief. But enough with introduction. It is time for you to listen to this amazing lecture. And if you like it, of course, share it among your friends. Oh, by the way, if you're interested in, in abortion and in having non-ideological conversation, and of course, if you're an Austinite or live near Austin, check our website and register for our upcoming compact reading group, Letter to a Child Never Born. I can't wait to have those conversations with you. Enjoy the listen. Thank you, Dr. Agneris, and thank you to Mariana and the Austin Institute for having me today. I'm really excited to spend this time with you today on an, a topic that I think is very um, current, um, I would say. There's, unless you've been living under a rock, um, there's a lot going on in the field of abortion law and politics. And in some ways, I think some people thought that the Dobbs decision would sort of um, be an end point, and I think it's r rather more of a beginning point of a new phase of that uh, story. So um, the topic of my talk is the future of abortion law and policy, but before I get to the future, I want to go back to the past for a second and talk about the Dobbs case, um, because I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about what that case did do and what that case did not do. So I wanted to start there as sort of a backbone to what we will talk about for the future. So uh, the Dobbs case, it was a case against the state of Mississippi who had a law that prohibited abortion after 15 weeks gestation. Uh, this was a little bit edgy at the time because the uh, Supreme Court precedent at that time said that states could not ban abortion before viability. And viability has been kind of a moving line, which I'll discuss in a few minutes, but uh, it's not at 15 weeks. Um, it's more around 22, 23 weeks. And so 15 weeks pushed the envelope on that standard a little bit. 
But the reason that Mississippi said that they wanted to ban abortion at that gestational age is because there is evidence to suggest that the fetus can feel pain at, at that gestational age. And so they wanted to prohibit abortion starting then. Um, interesting fact, at that time, Mississippi only had one abortion clinic in Jackson, and they were the plaintiff in the lawsuit. And also another interesting fact is that that abortion clinic only uh, performed abortions up to 16 weeks gestation. So what we were talking, what the dispute was in that case was abortions performed between 15 and 16 weeks gestation, which in Mississippi at that time was only about, I think between 70 to 85 abortions per year. So not a lot of abortions we're talking about there. But the abortion clinic challenged the law. So the case wound its way up through the courts and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said that, well, according to the current case law, we have to say that this law is unconstitutional. The case went up to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court granted cert. So it granted the petition to take the case. Now, you've, you've probably, so sort of like as a, to set the stage, for this case. Um, abortion law had been kind of a mess up until that point. Um, so when Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, um, it established for the first time a constitutional right to abortion and it employed what they referred to as the trimester framework. So based on what, what trimester the woman was in pregnancy, that was how the law would evaluate whether a restriction on that right was past constitutional muster or not. Um, and so the Roe had been, um, aside from setting aside the contentious moral issue, moral and philosophical issue of abortion, the Roe decision itself had been subject to a lot of criticism over the years for various reasons. Um, one reason is that um, there was really no foundation in the text, the history, or the tradition of the Constitution for an abortion right. And what that means is there was no textual right to abortion, so the, the Constitution doesn't mention abortion. Um, and it wasn't really in keeping with the tradition to where the court could say, yeah, this was something that was common at that time or what people would understood that this word um, liberty would mean um, to people at that time because uh, the Roe decision ended up finding the right to abortion in the 14th Amendment. And at the time the 14th Amendment was ratified, all states criminalized abortion. So it's hard to say that it's rooted in the history of the 14th Amendment if it was an illegal act at the time the 14th Amendment was ratified. And notably, a lot of people don't know this, but um, commentators of all ideological stripes have criticized the Roe opinion and its reasoning. Um, one notable critic was John Hart Ely, um, who was a supporter of abortion rights as a matter of legislative policy, but he wrote that Roe, quote, was not constitutional law and gives almost no sense of an obligation to try to be. Um, even Justice Ginsburg, um, in her dissent in the Carhartt case, 
suggested that perhaps they should have found the right to abortion in the Equal Protection Clause rather than the uh, Substantive Due Process Clause. Uh, so over the years, the, court had, the Supreme Court had sort of struggled to figure out where the abortion right was found and how to implement it. And basically, litigants fought it out for many years, and the Supreme Court would, you know, take a case and sort of change it up a little bit, and then, you know, everyone would go back to the lower courts and fight it out for a few more years, and then the cycle just repeated, and then, you know, after a few years, the Supreme Court would take another case, mess it up a little bit more, and then, you know, so on and so on and so on. So. The abortion right had previous had been variously treated over this long period of litigation um, by the Supreme Court as a fundamental right in Roe, a less robust protected liberty in Casey, and significantly the court actually avoided using the term right to abortion until many years after Roe. And then since then, uh, so the right had been grounded alternatively in different goods of privacy, that's from Roe, then Liberty in Casey, and then, as I mentioned, um, suggested equality in Justice Ginsburg's dissent. Um, the actual test um, to or for evaluating laws that impact abortion um, was first analyzed under the trimester framework of Roe, then the court scrapped that for pre versus post viability uh, undue burden standard of Casey, um, and then transformed yet again into an open-ended burden versus benefit calculus in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. And then the final step in that process was in June Medical Services versus Russo, which was the last case the Supreme Court took before it took the Dobbs case. And in that case, the court seemed to suggest a substantial obstacle assessment combined with a rational basis test in some circumstances. So the, the sum of all of that is that abortion law was very uh, inconsistent and it was very difficult to apply. Um, at, before, the the, before the court took the Dobbs case, uh, this sort of messy jurisprudence was summed up by uh, Judge Easterbrook of the Seventh Circuit. Uh, he said, the undue burden approach announced in Casey does not call on a court of appeals to interpret a text, nor does it produce a result through interpretation of the Supreme Court's opinions. How much burden is undue is a matter of judgment. Only the justices, the proprietors of the undue burden standard can apply it to a new category of statute. So, how to apply these various tests, um, and I'm gonna focus on the undue burden test because that was the one that applied for most of the time and what the courts later sort of said that they were still applying even though they had kind of changed it. Um, that was a difficult task for courts. So, what, that, what the court was looking for there was whether a law regulating abortion put a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion. Now, what exactly a substantial obstacle was, um, was sort of unknown. Um, so it was difficult for courts to apply this standard. And so if you think through one example, um, 
so in Texas, we had a law that prohibited live dismemberment abortion. And so what that was, was uh, most abortions, and you may or may not know this, a lot of people don't know a lot about abortion procedures in general, but the com most common abortion procedure in the second trimester is what's referred to as dilation and extraction, um, or excuse me, evacuation. And so what that involves is dilating the woman's cervix, uh, going in with uh, forceps, and then grabbing onto parts of the fetus and yanking them out. And the traction basically between the fetus and the woman's cervix causes the various body parts to detach. So the doctor will reach in with a pair of forceps, grab onto something and pull out an arm, and then reach back in, grab onto something and pull out a leg, and so on and so on until eventually the doctor gets the head, crushes that, brings it out, and then the doctor has to look um, to make sure they've gotten all the parts because otherwise the woman could get an infection. So that's what the typical second trimester abortion pro uh, procedure involves. Uh, so what Texas did, and a few other states did this, is they said, you can't do that procedure on a live fetus. Um, you have to perform a procedure first called uh, feticide, which is like an injection that would kill the fetus before it could be dismembered. Um, so, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about, so we're going to try to apply the undue burden standard to that. So can women still get abortions in the second trimester? Yes. Do they have to have, is there another step that they have to go through first in order to get that abortion? Yes. Does that amount to a substantial obstacle on her ability to get an abortion? I don't know. That's what we fought over in court for a couple of years. So some, some judges would say yes, some judges would say no, some people would say yes, and some people would say no. So in practice, it was a very difficult test to apply. Um, another aspect of Casey, like I mentioned before, was the viability standard. And so Casey said that the states could regulate abortion, um, and, but could not ban abortion until after viability. And so viability, uh, at the time of the Roe decision was about 28 weeks gestation. Well, there have been a lot of advances in medical technology since uh, 1973. And so now the standard of viability is more around 22 weeks. And there have even been babies that have been born at 21 weeks gestation and survived. So uh, that's a significant change. I mean, that's uh, six weeks gestation in the womb. There's a big difference between a 22-week baby and a 28-week baby. And whereas in 1973, if a baby was born at 28 weeks, um, it was very unlikely that that baby would survive. Now, uh, a 28-week baby is almost virtually certain to survive. Um, so huge difference there. But because Casey enshrined the viability standard in the law, that could not it, it, that could not change. They were, the courts were having to constantly figure out where that line was because it could change. The other thing about the viability standard that later became problematic was that it didn't allow for any other considerations, right? So certainly viability could be an important consideration for a state to consider when deciding how it was going to regulate abortion procedures. 
but there could be other reasons that were just as legitimate, but the law didn't allow room for those. So one thing is uh, the development. So when you're thinking back to like, you know, 1973, they didn't really have ultrasounds back then. They were very rudimentary. You know, now you can go to a mall and get a 3D image of your baby. You can see, you know, whose who's nose the baby has. Um, so just very different. And so that caused a difference in the way that people thought about unborn babies. Um, another consideration is that uh, what I mentioned before was that there's a lot of science that suggests that at a certain point during gestation, the fetus can feel pain. And so it seems irrelevant philosophical or moral concern if a state is thinking about regulating abortion. Um, if the procedure is performed on a human organism that can feel that pain. Um, but again, the viability standard didn't allow for those considerations to come into play. So what you had was really a situation where uh, the court had this legal standard that was very difficult to apply in practice. That led to all kinds of fighting in the courts over and over again over a period of time. Um, and then you had a standard that also didn't take into account other relevant considerations that were informed by developing science and technology. So really, the Roe decision um, and the Casey decision and its underpinnings were really ripe for reconsideration just because of those problems that it had which really had nothing to do with whether or not, you know, you think abortion is a good idea or a bad idea. Those were just uh, technical problems, I guess, with how the courts were applying this. So uh, the court ended up, um, as you all probably know, the court ended up overruling Roe and Casey. And in the majority opinion, Justice Alito wrote that the the, the Roe opinion was wrong. They overruled that opinion. And one thing a lot of people say is that it was extraordinary that the court overruled that case, but it's actually really not. The Supreme Court actually overrules cases a lot, even really old cases. So that in and of itself isn't remarkable. It's just the uh, importance that society had placed on this abortion right that made it particularly controversial in this instance. So the court said that um, instead of us sort of being the abortion police and having to deal with this issue every you know, few years, we were going to reverse Roe and Casey um, and there is no federal constitutional right to abortion. So the question of how and whether to regulate abortion is the state's job and not ours. So, that in and of itself is quite a significant development, I think, because it's not very often in our uh, society that people with a lot of power voluntarily choose to give up that power. Most leaders in our society want to take power and keep power for themselves, but uh, the Supreme Court in this instance gave away that power to the states and said, we don't want to be in charge of regulating abortion anymore. We want the states to do it. That's their job. Um, so that's pretty significant and I think a pretty good thing um, when our government decides that it's not going to take power. Uh, so 
Functionally, Dobbs did not ban abortion. What it did instead was it returned the question of regulation of abortion to the states. So that means that states can set their own abortion policy subject only to rational basis review. And so rational basis review uh, is a very low standard. Um, most of the time, the government can meet it. Um, it basically just, at the court will just ask, does the government have any possible reason that makes sense for this law? So you can imagine that in most cases, the answer to that question is yes. Um, so, you know, that, that, as I mentioned before, that was um, not really like the end. That was only the beginning of a whole different uh, uh, way of thinking about abortion and particularly with, in law and policy. Um, so now moving into the present, um, what, does, what does abortion law look like now? Well, so the most obvious change is that whereas before, because abortion was a federal constitutional right, most cases involving challenges to abortion regulations were litigated in federal courts. But now, because there is no federal constitutional right to abortion, that litigation has now changed forums from the federal courts to the state courts. And so what we have now are states that have various laws re regulating abortion. So anything from a ban on abortion, like in Texas, to a ban after 15 weeks in Florida, to just any abortion anytime, like some other states like New York. Um, and so this, the state laws vary from state to state. Some, some states have a heartbeat law, uh, like Texas did before the Dobbs decision. Um, and so it's, and some states are still kind of trying to figure it out. So now you have, instead of uh, abortion advocates bringing cases in federal court, now they're bringing cases in state court, asking state courts to find a right to abortion in the state constitution. So there have been a few states that have decided that yes, our state constitution protects a right to abortion. But in many instances, the problems with those decisions are similar to the problems that, under, that were underlying the Roe and Casey decisions because then you get, then the court has to answer the question of, well, how do we evaluate regulations on abortion? Where do we find this right? That is a thorny question in and of itself because, you know, every state has a different constitution, but a lot of state constitutions have provisions that are very similar to feder the federal constitution. And so in a lot of instances, the state Supreme Courts have said, you know, our uh, freedom of speech law is similar to the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And so therefore, um, we interpret our free speech provision of the state constitution to be the same as the federal constitution. And so that makes federal law interpreting the First Amendment similar or applicable to uh, what would normally just be a state law question. So, uh, so if there's no right to abortion in the federal constitution, unless your state constitution is very different, um, 
it seems that the same logic would apply to the state courts. Um, but some, some state court, some state Supreme Courts have disagreed with that. Um, there's also a lot of uh, uncertainty in the law right now because there were some cases litigated in state court previously, but the state Supreme Court sort of relied on the federal law and said, well, we're going to interpret this similar to the federal constitution. And so therefore we're going to import the undue burden standard into our state law. Well, now that there's no federal undue burden standard, how do you then apply, do you still apply that under state law? Um, do you come up with a new standard? Um, you know, all of these questions are still being worked out in the courts right now. So another question, uh, or another, another thing that has started to occur because of the fact that state courts are now evaluating whether there's an abortion right under the state constitution, um, there have been some ballot initiatives in states uh, to define, or to, to uh, allow the people to say what their state constitution says. So um, amending the state constitution to say explicitly there is a right to abortion in the California Constitution, for example, or there is, there is no right to abortion in the state constitution. And, you know, we, we recognize the personhood of a, of a human fetus in some other states. Now, there were some states that you would normally think of as sort of red states, and generally their legislation is pretty um, pro-life, and those ballot initiatives um, from this last summer did not pass. And so that was an interesting question of why didn't those pass since most of the people in the state tend to be pro-life. Um, but there was a lot of discussion initially and probably a lot of you saw in the newspaper um, or online that uh, you know there were questions raised as to whether if you banned abortion, whether women would still be able to get treatment for ectopic pregnancies or miscarriages and you know, no one wants women to suffer or die because they, you know, do they do we need abortion to be able to protect women's health? Um, and so there, there was some uncertainty there created by a lot of media narratives, and so uh, people voted against it. Um, but just so you know, um, Texas is a state that prohibits abortion, but a woman under Texas state law can explicitly receive treatment for ectopic pregnancies, can explicitly receive treatment for miscarriages. The ban on abortion does not have anything to do with contraception. Um, and if a woman's life or health is in danger, she can have an abortion based on the judgment of her doctor. And that is the case in basically all states that I know of that restrict abortion severely. Um, so another issue that's cropped up is the issue of enforcement. So it's one thing for a state to have a law that prohibits abortion, but who enforces that law? Well, in most cases, it's the local district attorney who chooses whether or not to prosecute a particular offense or you know, to bring charges in, in that instance. And so what you had around the time that Dobbs was being decided or after Dobbs was decided you had some district attorneys who said publicly, I'm not going to enforce any restrictions on abortion. I'm not going to enforce any criminal laws that restrict abortion. Um, 
so, you know, some people were frustrated by that because, you know, while the district attorneys generally do, as a matter of course, have prosecutorial discretion in deciding which cases to bring and which charges to press, you know, based on whether they think that they can win in front of a jury, um, announcing preemptively that you won't prosecute an entire particular law is something that's a little bit different than um, just plain old prosecutorial discretion. So in some states we've seen, uh, I believe this happened in Florida, there was a DA who said that they would not uh, prosecute abortion-related offenses, and uh, I believe the governor removed him from office. Um, in some places, voters have initiated recall um, of particular DAs who have vowed not to enforce the law. Um, so before, before Dobbs was decided, obviously there were laws that were passed at the state level, but Dobbs really has changed the calculus there because in a lot of states that were pro-life who were um, enacting what they thought were pro-life laws or, you know, restrictions on abortion, you know, sometimes those states would enact the laws and not really be sure whether those laws would pass muster under the current test because of the things that we've already been talking about because uh, it was difficult to predict what laws would remain, um, how the courts would evaluate those laws. There were sometimes that states like Mississippi purposely chose to enact a law that would sort of push the envelope a little bit. Um, but in that case, the laws were generally overturned or, over, or, um, or held to be unconstitutional and couldn't be enforced. So the states never really had to grapple with the question of, well, what happens if this restriction on abortion is upheld? What does our state look like then? What other laws should we pass to um, deal with the issue of unplanned pregnancy, which is sure to still occur even if abortion is prohibited? Um, how do we create a safety net for women facing unplanned pregnancies? How do we care for babies that are born in those situations? Those are all questions that the state never really had to deal with on a broader scale um, before it became a reality that all abortions could be prohibited in a state. So another thing about that is that, uh, you know, generally speaking, um, the political process is more accessible to people um, the more local it gets. Um, so federal legislation, um, typically unless you're really into a particular topic or very political person, um, it's hard to really get involved in that and influence that. But when uh, the political process is closer to home, so at the state level, um, people have a little bit more influence there. And so uh, people can be more engaged at the local level. Um, you know, so just as one example, uh, it's probably pretty difficult to meet uh, your senator or your congressman, but uh, a state representative, they tend to be a little bit more accessible because that's somebody that's typically from your community. Um, and so now that we have law, that now that it's possible to legislate in a way that um, restricts abortion, uh, we have, we have this, this kind of new uh, ability for communities to be able to 
engage more and learn more about the policy and all aspects of the policy rather than just do we abort and allow abortion or not allow abortion. So that's something that has changed significantly and I think in terms of uh, engagement of people, that's something that's a good thing. So that brings up the future question. So policy, what does this look like in the future? Um, and so what we've sort of seen, the trends that we've seen so far, uh, I think we can expect to continue into the future. And so first starting with the pro-choice side, um, the pro-choice side is working very hard on policies that are important to that, to that view. Um, and we've seen that in several states. Um, the, the broad categories, I would say, are, you know, the pro-choice side is concerned with expanding abortion rights where it can. Um, so in states that don't have abortion bans, don't have constitutional amendments restricting abortion, um, they're targeting those states to either pass laws that allow abortion, to pass ballot initiatives that protect abortion as a constitutional uh, right, and also to um, you know, bring cases that are designed to expand that, that right. Um, another thing that the pro-choice side is, is um, aimed their sights at is increasing access to medication abortion which involves uh, taking pills that uh, cause the woman's pregnancy to end and her body to expel the fetus. Um, now, those can usually only be, be used up in the early parts of pregnancy, um, but as you can imagine, it's more, it's uh, easier to give pills to people than it is to bring someone in for a surgical procedure. So um, expanding access to pills will necessarily mean that people who, even people who are in states where abortion is prohibited, they may be able to gain access to those pills to receive abortions. So that's something that's important. And um, recently the Biden administration actually removed some of the restrictions that were on the abortion pill um, to make it easier for people to get. So for example, previously because, uh, because abor ab abortion pills were classified as uh, high risk medication. And one reason for that is that uh, in you know, a fair amount of cases uh, after a woman had taken the pills, if her body doesn't expel all of the fetus or all of the placenta, then um, she can get an infection. And so sometimes the pills didn't work correctly. Um, sometimes maybe the dosage was wrong. She was further along in her pregnancy than what the doctor thinks. And so at that point, the woman has to go in for the surgical procedure to remove the rest of the pregnancy uh, tissue and the fetus from her uterus. Um, so that's kind of, uh, you know, reason that they had more restrictions on access to that pill. Another reason is that uh, it's very dangerous for a woman to take abortion pills if she could have an ectopic pregnancy. So a lot of states, and, and so the, the FDA protocol previous to this and a lot of state laws required that before a doctor prescribed abortion pills, um, 
they would have to do an ultrasound on the woman to confirm the location of the pregnancy. Um, so the Biden administration, uh, the FDA, decided to get rid of some of these extra restrictions and to make it easier for, uh, say, pharmacies to dispense the drugs rather than before it had to be only dispensed through a designated provider um, that was accountable to the FDA. Another thing that uh, is important to the pro-choice side in terms of policy is increasing public funding for abortion. So uh, the, it is not a requirement that states uh, use Medicaid money to pay for abortions. Many states choose not to do that, but there are some states who choose to. And so uh, the, um, whether or not a state will pay for a woman's abortion um, often influences her decision to have the abortion. And so um, that's something that on, on the pro-choice policy side is important there. Another thing that we've seen in some pro-choice states is sort of a uh, crackdown or a, um, I guess, increased scrutiny of pregnancy resource centers. And so pregnancy resource centers are organizations that uh, don't provide abortion, but will often provide pregnancy tests and ultrasounds and uh, will provide support to the woman um, if she chooses to, well, actually, even if she doesn't choose to continue the pregnancy, but Basically, they, they try to uh, support the woman um, after, after the choice or after she decides to keep the baby, um, provide her with pregnant, uh, for parenting resources, connecting her with figuring out how to get child support from the baby's father, uh, diapers, formula, baby clothes after the baby's born. Um, some, some pregnancy resource centers work with uh, pregnancy homes, so if a woman uh, finds herself pregnant and doesn't have a place to go, maybe gets kicked out of her current living situation, they have homes where uh, some women can stay and um, have their baby and stay for a while until they get on their feet. Um, but a lot of the pro-choice side um, thinks that uh, these, some of these resource centers uh, influence women to try to get them to not have abortions. and so. They don't like them. Um, so I think the uh, Attorney General of New York had started um, sort of sur conducting surveillance on some of the pregnancy resource centers in New York. So on the pro-life side, um, a lot of the legislation we've seen is states that were implementing bans. So that happened in Texas, uh, that happened in Louisiana, and a lot of other states, I think, I think we're up to 18 states that prohibit abortion. Um, then, you know, there's also sort of a middle ground, like I mentioned, Florida prohibits abortion after 15 weeks. Um, there may be some more restrictive legislation in the works there, but unclear whether that will pass uh, the state legislature. Um, on the flip side of the pill issue, um, many pro-choice states are attempting to address the problem of pills coming into the state um, with restrictions, uh, with consequences there. 
I, but you additionally have the problem of enforcement that we talked about earlier. And it's difficult to, you know, figure out if somebody gets a package in the mail, what it really contains. So um, that is a difficult issue um, for states that are trying to regulate that. And then a lot of states are facing the question that I alluded to earlier, which is, okay, we've, we've prohibited abortion or we've uh, significantly restricted abortion, but you know, there will be people that will, or women that will face unplanned pregnancies in our state. And so how do we take care of the women and the babies and the families in those situations? And so uh, one example in Texas, uh, when Texas passed the Heartbeat Act um, before the Dobbs decision came out, um, at the same time that it passed that law, it also passed $100 million in funding to, for the state alternatives to abortion program. Um, which funds organizations like pregnancy resource centers and other nonprofits to provide support for women who are going through that process. Um, so, you know, where people often think of uh, people who are pro-life tending to be more conservative and people who are pro-choice tending to be more liberal, this is an area that gets kind of um, a little bit blurred because typically increased government services is a more liberal position. Um, but, you know, a lot of conservative pro-life people have recognized that if we want to encourage women to have babies and even if they think they might be less than ideal circumstances, we need to come alongside and support that woman and provide for that baby who's born into those situations. And um, a lot of ways to do that is by increasing, um, increasing funding for those situations, um, creating government programs that will, will help those women. Um, so that's something that's a little bit different maybe than um, the stereotypical conservative priority of usually reducing government spending. Um, and then another uh, policy area that is important to some on the pro-life side is passing legislation or laws designed to recognize uh, fetal personhood. So um, it's unclear whether if, if, a, if a state, um, so I guess that going back to the Dobbs opinion, it did not say that a state could not allow abortion. It just said it was a state law question. But for some people that didn't go far enough and they thought that, in, that the court should instead say that not only does the Constitution not have a right to abortion, but the Constitution recognizes the right of the fetus to life. And there's, there's you know, some support for that, some arguments for that, but it's unclear whether the Supreme Court would agree with that perspective. Um, there was a concurring opinion by one of the justices that suggested that maybe that would be a bridge too far and that that justice might not want to read into the Constitution that right, um, just like that justice did not want to read into the Constitution the right to abortion in the first place. Um, so it's unclear whether there would be a five-vote majority to, um, to go that far. But... Um, there are people who would like to see that happen. And so that may be perhaps something that might end up back in the federal courts is uh, 
the pushing the question of whether um, the, the fetus or the baby has a right to life that's protected in some way by the federal constitution. Um, so, so just kind of to, to go back up to the 50,000 foot level, Dobbs changed a lot of things. In many ways, it was the end of an era. It was the end of the era of uh, confusing standards, um, hard fought litigation in federal courts that went on for years, uh, the Supreme Court having to step in every few years and you know, take sides in these battles and you know, decide some questions that maybe had more to do with science and medicine than law. Um, but in some ways, Dobbs uh, opened a new chapter really for all of these other questions that we're thinking about here. Um, and we're really at the beginning, I think, of that, of that era. And how we will go forward is, is really remains to be seen. So um, I think that, you know, in terms of the question of uh, public services, that's something that really could be a bipartisan issue that we might see some people joining hands across the aisle that we might not normally see. And that could be very interesting. Um, in some ways, uh, it may just continue to be polarizing. Um, you know, the issue is very emotional for people and is very hot button. And so we may be um, still as as divided as we were before Dobbs, um, you know, 20 years into the future. But um, I think that one, one vision that the Supreme Court, I think, maybe had, and what a lot of people advocated for was by giving up this, this uh, power that they had to sort of be the abortion police, um, the abortion arbiters, by giving that up, they're basically taking themselves out of the equation and they're allowing the political process to work. And so whether that political process, um, it, if that political process is allowed to work and reflects the will of the people, whether the will of the people in a particular state or locality is on the side of abortion rights or is on the side of the right to life, um, it allows that process to work and for people to engage, people to learn more about the issue, people to petition their governments and for the laws that reflect their values to govern their, their states, which was previously not really an option. So I think that that's all good. I think that uh, you know, people's opinions are going to change significantly over the next few years. Um, like I said, a lot of people don't really know what abortion procedures entail, but this political interchange, this um, engagement in the political process, I think will cause a lot of people to think about those questions. And another thing about abortion is that it's sort of not really a polite topic of conversation. Um, people don't like to think about abortion. People don't like to talk about abortion. Oftentimes, people who um, abortion has touched their lives in one way or another, they don't like to share that with others. And so, um, you know, it kind of brings that issue out into the open and allows people to engage more with that process, which I think is uh, 
a good thing and which is what our system is designed to do. So Dobbs ended a chapter of Supreme Court regulation of abortion, started a new chapter of the fight over abortion rights at the state level, at the local level, and that I think is the future of abortion law and policy. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.